Hey guys, welcome back. Thank you for joining. Uh, today, I'm really pumped to say I have an interview with Dave White, and Dave does playback for Ed Sheeran. So, as far as playback engineers go, um, they don't really get any bigger than this. So, really excited to have Dave on the show. So, a few things right off the top. Uh, love it if you go to Instagram and check out Ableton Cast. Uh, please add me, like me, love me for that matter. I'm um, trying to think of any deals. Oh, there's always deals going on. The only thing I can think of is uh, Output. Output always has some deals on. Check them out. Love them. And hope everybody has been doing doing all right with this whole lockdown thing. Uh, hope you're all safe. I think we're all kind of getting getting used to it. And I think just as we're getting used to it, things are kind of starting to change, which is probably a good thing. So anyways, guys, thank you so much for joining. And uh, yeah, stay tuned. Okay, welcome back to Ableton Cast. Um, today, I'm really grateful to have Dave White on the show. Uh, and instead of me trying to explain what Dave does, I think I'll just let you explain. So if that's, if that's okay. So Dave, <laughs> um, welcome to the show. And I wondered if you could just tell people um, what you do and what you've been doing. Oh, thank you very much. Um, yes, yeah, uh, I am, well, I work as Ed Sheeran's Chewy Tech. Uh, Chewy is the name for his custom looper system uh, that we've had designed and built specifically for him. Um, we use Ableton to host uh, a custom component plugin and uh, run remote controls for Ed himself over various networks. So I'm the man that looks after that and uh, helps him out with all his uh, stage audio. How did you sort of get started if you sort of like rewind for, for any young kids out there who think, oh, wow, that would be amazing. I'd love to do what he's doing. Um, you know, what did you go to college for or university or any, you know, sort of what, what was your path? Uh, yeah, it was a little bit, it, it, I went to, uh, I went to college and I actually trained in, uh, theater doing theater shows and, uh, we had a two year college course, but that's the only sort of formal education I, I had bar obviously training courses and product courses and bits you can do now, but it was more just a case of trying to get myself in and around music, you know, working in small venues, meeting musicians, and then, I was very, uh, very lucky to be able to work in and out of studios and sort of learn a bit more craft that way. Um, but it's uh, it's been more of a sort of a, a slow and bumpy ride, depending on the, the people you meet. But all of my works come from the connections I've made and just like working around small venues and getting bigger and meeting more artists, more musicians, more production managers, employees and that way, really. Yeah. So if you're not on the road, are you usually doing sort of freelance studio stuff? Yeah, I uh, I co-own a studio based in Fleet, Hampshire with uh, actually one of the drummers I met on the road. We we He had a project going, so I, uh, over the course of a few years, started to get involved with that and we uh, ended up partnering in the business. So when I'm not touring on the road, uh, I go and do some sessions there and mix downs. We do quite a lot of work remotely between the two of us so it, it keeps us busy um especially now during lockdown there's uh it's definitely keeping us all sane <laughs> yeah cool um how did you get introduced to ed sheeran how did that happen uh so uh, a good friend of mine i went to college with actually he, we kind of uh, we always stayed friends but uh we went off in sort of different directions i started working with other bands and so did he and then uh one day he he started with Ed pretty much from the beginning. He he 
uh, met the production manager and started working with them. And then one day I phoned him up and said, hey, is there anyone new you can introduce me to? And uh, he introduced me to a lovely chap called Chris Marsh, who's uh, Ed's production manager and uh, sound engineer. And uh, he sent me on a few jobs for him and the PA company um, they run. And yeah, after about six months of doing other the jobs, he phoned me up and he said, hey, I'm, I'm doing Ed in arenas. Do you want to come and fly PA for me and uh, be one of the uh, technicians out on the road? So that's where it all started back in 2014, I think that was. Wow. And I'm assuming you've been all over the world with that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a... It's between quite a few of us that are on the road, we, we like to track where we've been and uh, there's a couple of little apps you can use and it's quite fun to like plot in all the countries you've been to and it gives you a percentage. So I think I'm up to about 28% of the world now, which is, uh, it's really good fun. Yeah, cool. So when, when you started, I'm guessing you weren't doing playback right away or were you? No, absolutely not. I was, uh, I was one of the PA techs, so it would be my job to sort of... Uh, go in and hang the PA in the venues because we were touring full arena-sized PA at that point and uh, work with uh, Charlie Albin, our systems uh, designer and system engineer and sort of hang the PA, get that all done. And it, I would always sort of help out with uh, Trev, Trevor Dawkins, who's Ed's guitar tech, and he was running all the looper system back in 2014. He was a very, very busy man. Um, so I would try and help him out and just be like a presence on stage, a, a contact for, you know, the PA side of things and, uh, just slowly got more involved, tried to help out where I can. And, uh, when it came down to the divide tour coming out a few years later, um, Chris phoned me up and he said, look, I know you've, uh, got experience with studio and good in technology and it was great working with you. Do you want to, uh, take on the looper thing? Cause we want to we found that Trev was a bit overloaded trying to do all the guitars, guitars yeah. and everything. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he, uh, he got me involved in that way. And then my, my role sort of shifted. I'd, uh, I'd still go and hang PA every day and be part of the PA team, which was great. But my job role then became sort of a looper engineer. Why did you make the decision to use Ableton? for it uh it was the the guys that originally started the project and that well they saw it through but they were the go-to they created chewy one um they turned me on uh turned us on to it and quite rightly so because especially for a live environment even though we run a parallel sort of redundant setup ableton's really really good at um working live and responding you know there's you can host what we ended up doing probably in a multitude of applications but a ableton's been designed for live use um yeah so over the three and a half years i suppose and we we had an a and a b rig sort of the full b rig that uh which was the parallel redundant setup and then we go and do sort of mini charity mini charity shows everywhere and bits and pieces so we just take a single ableton uh rig with us and it was it was pretty rock solid i think the only the only sort of we'd never had any software crashes it was always sort of a, a bit of a hardware or something you know in the in the sort of development stage but ableton was very rock solid for us for years so very confident in the choices that were made yeah. So can you tell us a bit about the sort of custom VST that w was made for Ed that sort of hosts everything, it loops everything? Yeah, so it was, um, like you just said, it was a custom written plugin. And the, the basic architecture of it is that it's uh, 
eight channel stereo looper so you have a, a two two channel input let's say we send his guitar and his vocal into there so he has a loop mic in the guitar much like the old school bosses which he started on and then from there we can then he can then loop on eight individual channels which can uh, mute or solo uh, turn on and off but you can then within Ableton using the pan return turn them into guitar and vocal channels uh, just a guitar loop channel just a vocal channel just literally by panning the output so you're only receiving one side or the other yeah um, so it was it was quite a simple sort of ideal but when you when you get down to sort of latency timings and crossover points and all that that's where the real sort of work came in and it, it was down to sort of ed to to say how he felt as he used it to refine the app from video footage that i've seen um uh, when when ed plays he's you know he, he's usually got his main mic that he's singing into and then i know he's usually does he usually have sort of like one to the left or one to the to the right as well that he'll do sort of like background vocals so yeah is, is is that right he's usually got sort of two vocal mics sort of one for the main lead vocal and then one to do sort of like background stuff yeah well that's that's exactly it we've always got the main mic which goes out to the pa which is his main vocal mic uh and then he'll have one looper mic um they're both on rf uh so we always have one looper mic that's sent through to the pedals um, that will specifically go there, just so you know when you move across to that mic, that is going to the looper, and yeah. you know, it's just a clear divide for him. Um, so that works, and then we had a mixture of uh, five guitar packs as well, because there was uh, lots of tuning changes, or whether it was a, a, a different type of guitar. Um, so that would all be matrixed at the front of house console by Chris to send back to the looper. Um, I wondered, I don't know if, I'm not sure sort of how recently you've been touring with Ed, but I remember watching the Glastonbury set and um, I don't know if you were there for that or not. Uh, Yeah, yeah, we were there. (laughs) Um, So song, uh, I think it's uh, Shape of You, the one that Mm -hmm. I think he starts on the keyboard, um, Mm -hmm. that sort of main keyboard. I was wondering... How how did the keyboard get looped? Does he have something on the keyboard that he's hitting to sort of loop that? Because I remember watching that thinking, ah, oh, he's just played that and now it's looping. I wonder if he did that or if I wonder if he's had one of the technicians hit that loop as well. No, absolutely. I mean, we did it in a very, very simple way. Obviously, Shape of You, when Divide came out, was the, the big hit that started it all off. So we, we needed to have that sample in there. Yeah. Um, so all, all we did is that's just a, a Native Instruments S49 keyboard. And it's just sending MIDI back to Ableton. And there's a channel in there with the samples in it. So yeah. it's just firing the samples. Then we routed that through to effectively be a guitar input on the looper so he would go to his i think it was channel three he started on um and then the samples would fire and they would then route into the application so everything he did was live if he if he played one of those keys out of time it would it would loop out of time there's no quantizing or anything like that involved it is purely his sense of timing yeah yeah sure um which which uh, another question like he's never playing to a click track is he it's always just um his own sort of like uh, sense of timing there's never anything done to a click right is that correct or yeah that's absolutely correct um He's he's got a remarkable sense of timing. He really, really has. We uh, I, I speak to Chris's front of house engineer, and he has preset delay times, 
And he set them at the beginning of the tour and I think very rarely changed them um, for certain vocal effects and stuff like that because Ed's, Ed's pretty consistent with his timing. So yeah. there was no point, you know, he, he live, he doesn't work with a click. He, he works with feel. Um, you know, occasionally, sometimes he may get a loop wrong, but he's very open and honest with it. He'll, yeah. he'll stop it and start again, but it, it happens very, very rarely. Um, I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about what is the setup that you have. Are you running sort of MacBook Pros or are you running sort of Mac Pro kind of towers um, to sort of like do all the playback stuff? Yeah, well, we we had two MacBook Pros, uh, probably a little bit little bit old now sort of thing, but two MacBook Pros with RME interfaces, uh, which are Madiface XTs. Um, that was the main thing we wanted to do with this system. Uh, it was one of the specifications from Chris was to have absolutely everything digital. So we had a Sennheiser 9000 series radio mic, which is uh, eight channels so we could get his main vocal, his loop vocal and a spare vocal, as well as uh, five guitar packs. And that would come out straight on AES, uh, go into our Digico console I.O., straight to the uh, front of house console, which would then do the routing and guitar matrixing. But then that can come straight back out AES, go into the uh, RMEs. Um, so it's it's exactly synced every time to the two interfaces. And then that would come out MADI, which would then be converted to AES to go back to the Digico console for uh, front of house mixing and monitors. So it's not a hugely sort of, there's not a lot of elements to it. I mean, especially when you're designing a rig like this, it's it's best to go less is more because the more processes you add in, more A to Ds, you end up with latency and stuff. Yeah. So um, we wanted to keep everything digital from absolute start to finish. And it, it is right from guitar input all the way through to pretty much when it hits the speaker to come out analog. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I know it's something that we really take for granted, but if you like, just take a second to think about like the speed of sound and how everything is actually working and how fast it's working. It's just incredible, you know, to think how it, you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's that's the one thing we we sorted to because because like you say, he's not working to a click. The moment he hits that pedal, it's got to be as instantaneous as you could make it. Um, but obviously, as you know from uh, software and dealing with that, the easiest way to make it easier on the hardware is to add a buffer in and latency so the, the computer has more time to process it. So not having A to Ds in there we could and uh, all these other processes, we could run this as as with lower buffer size as possible so that when Edit hit that pedal, it was you know as instantaneous as possible. As soon as you put in even, I think we changed uh, from... 64 to 128 once just to try and limit some hardware and ed noticed it within a second uh while we were rehearsing it's yeah. like no we can't do that because it just it doesn't work yeah sure um are you using any other plugins at all in ableton or is it just just the 2e one that you would use you're not using any sort of like audio effects at all are you um, we did, um, when he opens the show uh, with Castle on the Hill, uh, there's one of the channels that is affected with a delay and a chorus to give that sort of jangly guitar riff. Yeah. Um, it was literally the very first chord of the show. So, I mean, most of the effects that you would hear live, Chris was dealing through front of the house. console yeah. in front of house. But 
because M wanted that in the year and we've got Ableton there. It was a case of, right, just on the return channel of that, I had a little uh, Akai controller with MIDI presets. And so I could enable uh, that for the first song. And then when we started to get through the campaign, when uh, collaborations came out and we had all these um, all these other tracks that he'd just re uh, written and being released, obviously he wanted to include them in the show. And uh, there's one called Blows, fantastic track. Um, I think it's uh, Chris Stapleton uh, on there as well. Um, you have to check me on that one. Um, but again, that's a, that's a very heavy electric guitar riff on yeah. there. So we, we wanted to see if we could do something to emulate that, you know, obviously keep it all live, but what can we do? So um, Ed had a uh, baritone acoustic guitar made, which sounds uh, by Loudon. It's an absolutely amazing guitar. But we then started to put some overdrive plugins on it as well, just on the return of that one channel. Uh, just so we could give that sort of heavier, rockier feel to this sort of high energy. Um, I don't want to say acoustic cassette set because his his sets aren't acoustic. They're very yeah. they're very driven. They're very almost you know dancey. You see people going around to it, but that was something we could help to sort of separate it and you know make make that track sound a little bit more like the record when he played it. Yeah. Now, was there an amp on stage, or is he going sort of direct into? Just direct into Ableton with that baritone guitar. Yeah, just direct in through the standard uh, through the Sennheiser system. Yeah, and then through uh, uh, Chris's console. So, yeah, it was a case of you know some amp simulators on the back end and a bit of compression just uh, in an effects rack on the return of that one single plugin uh, to give an overdrive feel on it. Again, just uh, on a simple MIDI patch. Yeah. Um, and just bringing up in an effects rack, it seemed to seemed to work quite well. It definitely gave a, a good feel to the song. Yeah. Now, sort of like when you're on a tour, uh, going show to show, um, are things in Ableton pretty much staying the same night after night, or are you constantly having to make any tweaks as you go along? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, I think when you're doing a campaign like this, the, the key is consistency. Um, you know, we... There, there ended up being a very, very good product that was coming out, which people want to go and hear. Yeah. I mean, it gives you, if it ain't broke, don't fix it sort of thing. Yeah, you know, sure. It, it works. So your your job is to then deliver that to as many people consistently throughout the tour. So we we avoided tweaks. We, we don't even do soft. Once something's bedded in, we don't do software updates. We don't manipulate things unless there's something new to create. Everything that works, works. Um Unless Ed would turn around and say, oh, well, maybe I feel this should happen. But that happened very, very rarely sort of thing. It was um, it was a point of hitting consistency because when you, when you hit a consistency like that, then you can deliver everything on point because you're not thinking what's changed. It's like, no, this should happen then. And it, it gives a bit of a better performance, I think. Yeah. And I think you mentioned earlier that um, you really haven't had any issues with Ableton. You haven't had a crashed at all and of course i guess even if you did you've got the backup system running anyways yeah absolutely i think that there was one or two sort of over the time where we had to flip over to the uh the b machine as per se but i'm not still not 100 percent sure because we couldn't really piece it down when it would happen i mean we we put it down to a computer you know when you're going from somewhere like Iceland that's really, really cold. And then you're, you're, you know, down in South America where everything's just constantly overheating, you know, computers yeah. struggle. Yeah. So 
it's important having that A B system. I, I'd always have a direct link to Chris at front of house, and uh, if there was any any sort of a problem, it wasn't an auto switching system. It was it was a uh, manual on a uh, A B sort of MIDI command. Okay, uh, sure. So it was you. Was it you that would make that switch if there was a? Yeah, I'd I'd switch it over, and I the first thing I'd do is is get on the mic to to Chris and just go, everything all right? And usually the reply would be what. And uh, if his reply was what, that's good. He hasn't heard anything. And if he hasn't heard anything, Ezra hasn't heard anything. And that's yeah. the idea to be it completely synced. And then you could restart one system and then you'd be back up to full strength. Can you tell me what sort of software were you using to sync sort of computer A and computer B? Uh, bizarre. Well, this is something I've, I've sort of thought about a lot recently as technology moved on because uh, I know there's lots of very different methods of doing it but <clears throat> all we all we had to sync a and b was the fact that the signal came in at the same time and there was a word clock sync throughout the whole system um so there was no bits of data flying back and forth to say right i'm at this point i'm at this point yeah. we we relied on the fact that the the data for the looper control which was over an ethernet uh system over an ethernet network was hitting the loopers at the same time and that the audio feeding in was at the same time and that the samples were being sunk, obviously, via the word clock. That that was it. There was no sort of Ableton link or sort of clock going back and forth apart from the word clock. And, um, yeah, every time we flipped from A to B, we did multiple tests, especially as we went down the road, we would simulate crashes just to, just to make sure everything was yeah. all right over the long tour. And uh, we never... We never even noticed a small sort of tick that you'd imagine due to it being a, like a hard crash, a uh, hard switch. It was all, it all seemed to run in sync, you know, pretty much every single time. I think there was one occasion I noticed a slip, um, but we were on the A machine, it was on the B, so I restarted the B and everything seemed to sync back in absolutely fine and no one was any other wiser. Yeah, sure. Must be a stressful moment for you when that happens, when one machine goes down. Uh, yeah, I would say at the beginning it was, but again, you know, if you're if you're not constantly making changes, if you're you're repeating what you do every night, it does get easier as the time goes on. Obviously, you don't you're you're doing a live show. There's a lot of people out there, so there's adrenaline and everything like that. Even though myself and Trev are sort of hidden under the stage and yeah. <laughs> no one really sees us, but. Um, yeah, you just become so engrossed in your own little world. I mean, my show was watching a, a, a monitor with a, a quad view of Ed um, from various cameras so I could see when he was pressing the pedal and how it would respond. I had a, a little backstage pedal which would then mirror what he did so I could see if, you know, the pedal was responding and then obviously if he had an issue or a string break or anything like that, I can communicate with Trev. So you become engrossed in your own little sort of world down there and you try and forget about what's, how many people are out there. Yeah. It does make it easier. <laughs> yeah, no, is, is it something that you ever had to do? Um, did you ever have to sort of manually uh, make, make pedal changes from underneath the stage? Uh, not really. Um, there'll be, I would uh, set, set him up on so if he was meant to start on channel three at the end of the previous track i'd set him up on channel three but it's a very very fine line if he's doing something different to what you expect if you then change a pedal that's going to throw him out because he's constantly aware of where he is if i'm making changes then that's going to um you know that's going to mess him up and that's the last thing i want to do 
Yeah. Um, can you mention anything about, about the hardware that he's using? The foot controller looks like it's obviously a, a custom foot controller that sort of controls all, all the software in Ableton. Um, do you know who that was made by? Yeah, it was all, all made by the, the same people that they developed all the, all the software and bits, which are uh, two mu- very, very lovely and musician and technical guys, um, Sean Liscannis and uh, Johnny Jenkins. Um, they they helped put the first one together. So when it came up to the redo, um, they were they were forefront and they they worked with Ed and know him very well. Um, so they did all the machining. Um, the stipulation was it had to be the the boss pedals, which you can buy in the doubles. So that's why you see those there. And then they uh, they built in two monitors into the pedal as well. So you get one of the displays on the left that will give you uh, a waveform and a color indication whether you're in stop, play, uh, overdub. Um, so it'll go green, yellow, and red uh, and display the waveform so you can see what you're doing. And then the right screen would uh, give you a channel indication and also a VU meter, which was very good to tell you what you recorded on each channel and when it was playing back. Um, so the actual hardware on the pedal was two monitors over uh, SDI in the end, and then there's a small uh, Arduino computer in there that measures the contact closures for each of the pedal and then transports that over the network. So um, there was a, enough technology sort of put in there, but not over-complicating it. You know, Essentially, it's, it's contact closures, and the clever bits are happening in the laptop backstage to understand that, right, if I press that pedal, that that needs to give the clear command. Yeah, sure. And you said that's running over Ethernet. It goes Ethernet to you, really, from from the pedal. Then, to, yeah, yeah. Um, I wondered. Um, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't happen often, but how often do you have to swap out an Ethernet cable? And it, do you do tests on it to see if it's if it's all right? Because obviously, there's one of those things that I guess you just you don't know when they'll go down, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we made a stage loom um, that feeds the pedal. So I think what what is actually being used every day in in a show is one Ethernet for the pedal for control, two uh, BNCs for SDI to feed the two monitors. And there's a second Ethernet that's used for the MIDI over Ethernet for the cable, uh, for the keyboard, sorry. Uh, And then there's a send and return uh, analog audio system to a tuner. Uh, that we use so that's that's all there you need two cat fives uh two sdi bncs and two audio lines but there was also spare channels in there so we had another two audio lines in there there was a third sdi just in case that went down and two spare audio channels so i mean if you use high quality cables high quality terminated uh connections then bar something physically chopping the cable, if you respect it and look after it while you're on the road, it should be okay. But obviously we did have spare looms in there and uh, over the course of the the campaign, yeah, the, the cables would be re-terminated and retested. It would always be tested in sound check and system setup the previous day, um, tested uh, in the morning and then uh, the final test just before he went on stage to make sure everything's still working. Yeah, sure. So test, repeat, test, repeat, and then if you need to, repair. Yeah. Um, this isn't really a egg question, but it's more just, uh, I was thinking the other day, when you're on a big tour like that, what time do the guys start setting up the system? 
what time in the morning and how long does that usually take to set up a massive system like that? Uh, well, we, we actually got pretty quick at it, um, <laughs> which was uh, we would, well, there's, the stage build is one thing. The stage build would take around uh, two to three days, I seem to remember, but it was quite a big structure and delay towers they'd have to bring in. Uh, but the actual production setup, so that would come in, we'd come in about, uh, well, production would come in at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning and start tipping trucks. Generally, on a, we have one setup day before um, the concert day just to get everything in and give us time if anything was broken. So the guys would start 6.30, 6.37am. Uh, you're talking generally by about 3 o'clock that day. Everything's in, done, tested, or you're into repair world. Um, I mean, I can tell you from the audio team, Charlie, our systems engineer, he was in like with first shout measuring because you've got to uh, measure every stadium to get the angles for the PA and work out the plot. So he was yeah. always in first. Um, the rest of the PA team, we turn up about 10, 11 o'clock, get our, our numbers and our orders from Charlie. And by one o'clock, um, our entire PA which was, uh, let me think about this, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, ten hangs, I think, plus ground fills and subs. That was that was it usually, and we were pretty consistent in about three and a half hours. I was just going to say, um, how big of a team is it? How many guys are on the sort of, uh, on, on the PA set up? And... Uh, the PA set up, there was, we were a team of six, I believe, two, four, yeah, team of six, uh, including Charlie. Um, so we'd divide it up. We'd have four pitch delay hangs, uh, which would be a team of two uh, with four local crew per day with them. So they'd team off into one PA tech, two local crew, and they'd have to get up two hangs each. Yeah. And then we'd have two PA techs on stage left, uh, hanging the main, the subs, the side hang, the out hang, uh, the infills and the ground subs. And then two on stage right doing the same as well. Yeah. Now, if you're on a big tour like that, I'm assuming there there must have been there are days when uh, you're say uh, you're playing somewhere on a Tuesday and then you're playing somewhere on, on the Wednesday. Is that correct? Or were they uh, always spaced out because you would always need at least a day in advance for the stage build and stuff? When we when we were doing the arena circuit at the beginning of 2017, when Divide came out, then that's true. You usually do three or four on the bounce uh, where you travel on buses overnight, but you're you're hanging a slightly smaller show. It's it's long days. You're talking seven a.m. in the morning till sort of two a.m. in the morning. Few hours sleep, start again. So you do uh, three or four on the bounce uh, in each different venues. Um, you look forward to the days where you've got two shows in one venue. Um, yeah, then sure. You, you haven't got a call till two o'clock the next day, so you can go and have a beer. Um, but when you get to the stadium setups, you you need that that time to be able to set it all up because you're bringing every bit of infrastructure in with you. You're not relying on sort of house delays at the back of arena, and uh, obviously it's a much bigger setup. So um, we ended up having. Uh, four stages in total, uh, two that would leapfrog because of the time they took to rig and de-rig, but we'd have uh, one main production set up, which we would then tour around with us. But that wouldn't be day after day. That would be one one set up, what we call production day, then one show day, possibly two, possibly three, depending on where we are. And then you'd have a travel and then do it all again. 
Yeah. So effectively, if you were playing somewhere on a Tuesday, there may be a crew on a, a, a crew on that same Tuesday in the old location, in the previous location, tearing down the... Yeah, the, yeah, the stage crew would, they'd, uh, they'd sort of leapfrog. So you, you pop in and see them after they'd done three days and you'd be on your setup day. And then whilst you've, you've ripped down your, your traveling the next day and they've started their derig, um, they take about 24 hours to derig a set up and then they go to the next show, uh, uh, the show after, and then start their three day sort of setup. Yeah. Uh, there's so uh, many again. moving parts when it comes to like a massive tour like that, aren't there? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I really don't envy the, all the production guys and the management that deal with that when you're, you're looking at flying all this kit from continent to continent and it's it's there's a lot of cogs involved <laughs> there really, yeah, really when, is. when it comes to sort of like flying a massive system like that um i'm guessing they're using are you you're not probably flying you know with like ba you know uh <laughs> checking in line arrays and you know uh, how does no, that we, work is it sort of cargo <laughs> yeah you have a you, you use a cargo agent generally um so i mean i'm, I'm not hugely up on that but i i know i've taken i've put equipment on and off pallets and uh, then they take them away on flatbeds or you have to go to an airport so you can you can rent entire planes if you need it there or you can go uh they sell a lot of cargo space on on standard flights as well but everything has to be put onto pallets um which are very very thin strips of aluminium but they seem to hold a hell of a lot of weight yeah um so there there was an awful lot of that i mean it's we did have a couple of leapfrog systems where we'd uh, put things in containers and ship them on boats because you know if you've got the time it's a lot more cost effective way of doing it yeah um, sure but sometimes when you need you know and need a system there you you'd have to go and and put it on a plane i think there was a couple of situations where you know we had to get somewhere quickly and we ended up filling up like two 747s first of our, uh, full of our kit wow that's amazing <laughs> Yeah, there's a, there's definitely a lot of moving parts, but you rely on uh, freight agents um, to to be able to advise you and tell you what you can and can't do and how quickly you can get things to certain places, and that's all worked out in the routings before they uh, when they book the shows. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, well, I just wanted to ask you a couple more questions, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. No um, I'll just because you know I think playback is becoming you know a a, a sort of bigger thing and you know kind of we're seeing it happen with more and more artists that they have a sort of designated person running running the playback so yeah. just wondered if you had any advice to somebody who wants to get into playback and um what they need to sort of know and do to become a good playback engineer um one they, this it's that weird job role the playback because you need to know uh, understand music to a certain degree because there's I see a lot of playback techs when they're working with people and they'll deal with the MD of the band and they're like right I need uh, two bars locked out here I want to shift over to here there's a lot of people that will actually sort of trigger cue points in the single track to be able to move around with a live band on stage it's become a very very fluid thing but you've also got to understand the technology side of it you are that interface between the musicians on stage and and the digital world where their their support band are effectively you know 
like you say, there's a lot of people that want to add all, all of this technology in because they can nowadays to, to make the track sound fuller and uh, add all these little parts. They're not going to have 40 musicians on stage. So it's that, yeah, it's that really weird sort of crossover between understand the music, how it flows, the tracks, uh, dealing with the musicians, but also knowing how to build a good system and the technology around that. So, um, yeah, <laughs> try and understand both sides of the coin, I suppose. Yeah, uh, that is really cool. And, you know, for the sort of, um, you know, 10-year-old, 12-year-old kid out there who thinks they may want to do this, um, any recommendations on sort of like a career path that they should look at sort of like college-wise, university-wise? I guess you said you went through... Um, did you go through for some sort of kind of like performing arts or? Yeah, I did. I did performing arts in college uh, at college, but um, that I I had a choice. I, I could have gone to university, but by that point, I was a I was a very very practical person and probably quite an unruly student. So uh, I just didn't want to spend any more time in the classroom. I mean, you can you can pick any route that sort of suits you. I mean, some people. Um, like to go down the university route and they they learn so much of a wealth of information that way some people are better at, at talking and being out there i think if it's a passion of yours i think you can achieve it because you're going to put the work in and that's all it's down to really there's so many different avenues you could go it used to be that if you wanted a job in rock and roll you just have to do you know start off as local crew and then take an interest and hope someone picked you up or gave you some work but that's really not the route these days. A lot of university courses um, have been tailored towards the music and production industry and the way it works, and you develop contacts through that um, rather than being out on gigs. So I think maintain an interest and just work as hard as you can, and you can never learn too much. So if you're interested in something, I mean, with the internet these days, you know, YouTube, Facebook, you know, everything, you can learn anything you want to supplement the academic side as well. So um just keep plugging at it really yeah you know uh, your story is one that i've heard um well quite similar to i I hear sort of again and again of you know um working hard being a nice person and it sort of it happens just through sort of connections um you know so it's kind of a good reminder that um (laughs) you know sorry go on uh, that there's you know, that there's probably not going to be a um, post on LinkedIn for the Ed Sheeran playback tech. Um, but you get to that point from just, you know, working hard at what, what you're doing, being a nice person and sort of, you know, making the effort to sort of like, you know, uh, meet others who are doing the things that you like as well and staying in contact with them. And Absolutely. I mean, the other thing as well is if you, uh, I mean, the Divide Tour was... <laughs> it was a is a hell of a feat. We were away for a long, long time, and it's you know it's one of the best experiences of my life. I wouldn't swap it for the world. But if you think you've got to spend most of your life, say for that length of time, for three years with these people, more than you will see your family, your partner, anything like that, do you really want to spend time with someone you don't really like? You know, yeah. it's um, it's it's quite a big thing. Obviously, you've got to be good at your job, but. I'm sure there's there's a million other people that can do what I do, but can they get on with the people that is in that sort of team? And 
you see it a lot with freelance engineers. They they may be superb at their job and you know have a really good rap sheet, but then they move to a new team and they just they don't get on with the people for one reason or another. There's nothing wrong with it. They just don't gel. So that job's not for them. Um, so you know your your personality comes through and you end up sort of touring with like-minded individuals. Really, we were. We're we're all quite a close family on that tour. We still we still have weekly chats now, really. Yeah. Um, there was a bit of separation anxiety, I think, at the end of it. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And I guess it's it's um, it's still quite unknown, isn't it, when things will start back up? Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a tricky time at the moment. Um, obviously, no one no one really knows, and obviously, our, our entertainment industry has been hit really super hard i mean there's there's just nothing really happening i I see some bits over you know people are doing driving concerts and stuff it's like brilliant that's a great way to start it's sort of thinking around the problem but realistically do we know when it will go back to when it the way it was and will it go back to the way it was so um yeah it's uh it's a very very difficult time at the moment yeah um, well, last question. I always just like to give the guests a chance to um, tell people um, really what they're up to, where they can find them online. And just I'd like to give you a chance to sort of uh, plug anything that you've got going on that you think people should know about. <laughs> um, I'm I'm usually really, really bad at an online presence, I think they call it. I, uh, uh, so at the moment, I'm I'm just doing studio work, really. I've, I've been doing a couple of isolation videos with bands just to, you know, have fun like local bands uh, back from home. Uh, and there's some stuff coming through, some interesting stuff. I'm working with an artist uh, called Andrea Soler, hoping to do some stuff with her from uh, Australia. Long-time friend, great sort of folky style, very chilled-out musician. So hoping to do some work with her at the moment. But uh, apart from that, really, um, yeah, just uh, <laughs> I don't know, really. I don't, I'm not one for, I am on LinkedIn, I am on Facebook and all these things, but I don't post much. So I'm just sort of trying to uh, trying to find some studio stuff and uh, work through that at the moment. Yeah, cool. Well, Dave, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Ah, pleasure talking to you. It's been uh, it's been very interesting. Okay, another episode done, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Hope everybody is safe and well. Just wanted to add a note. Um, you can check out uh, Dave Studios, SunshineCornerStudios.co.uk. Uh, check them out. They're doing great stuff. And yeah, uh, just stay tuned. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Bye.